0: Is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend Jenny Blake, author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is your next one. You should listen to this show because we're gonna talk about how to make yourself more agile in your career, how to make sure you're not afraid to make a move forward instead of staying stagnant or worse, going for plan B, and how to actually pivot, and why it's not as drastic or dramatic as you might think, and why if you don't prepare for a pivot, you might be pivoted. So we'll show you how to prepare in advance, and last but not least, how to know when it's time to quit your day job and go all in on your side gig, or make the leap to a different job or career entirely. So enjoy this one with Jenny Blake. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC toolbox where we discuss things like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the United States, just text charmed to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444, Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes. All right, here's Jenny Blake. You're an interesting character because you have done the things that you write about in your book and seemingly it's not just, here's what other people should do from my ivory tower perspective. You've reinvented your career and moved around quite a bit for somebody who's had successful careers instead of just very low level, right? Because it's very easy to say, you know, you need to pivot, you need to change and do this when, if everything is kind of entry level. But you've had some serious roles with Google and other companies as well, and you've written a couple of books. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to write Pivot.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for saying that, first of all. And I have no interest in being up in some ivory tower and speaking from a soapbox of success. That's not interesting to me, nor do I think it's that helpful for people. The real reason I decided to write Pivot was leaving Google was a a tough decision. And I joke that it was like breaking up with Brad Pitt. You know, Everyone would react like, you really think you can do better than Google? How are you going to feed yourself? So leaving was not an easy choice. And I rode the adrenaline of that for about a year and a half. This was back in 2011, 2012. And then I just hit another wall. I already thought I was entitled, you know, am I just one of those entitled millennials that's never going to be happy? How come I'm not happy at Google? And then when it happened again, two years into running my own business, my first book was Life After College. And I realized I don't want to talk about that the rest of my career. I hit another wall. And once again, I felt crazy. And once again, I felt like I was losing my mind. And this time I didn't have a paycheck to fund that exploration. So as my bank account dwindled to zero, I had two weeks. I didn't have January rent. This was January, 2014. And I had to either move out of New York, or go get another job and fold my business. And that's the moment that I looked at. I've read over 400 personal development, much like you, Jordan, personal development, business, fitness, finance books. And I was pissed. Like, why aren't any of them working? I've been reading this stuff for 15 years. Why isn't it working? And so it was only when I started to really focus on what was working in my life and business. And that's when Pivot came to me of, not just how can people be as agile as startups, but how can we shift methodically in a new direction by leveraging what we already have. And so that was the crux of the book, because I think we're all gonna have to do this much more frequently.
0: Well, I agree with you there, and I think there's an interesting takeaway from just the first bit of this, especially in that you thought, am I just someone who's never going to be satisfied? and who knows, maybe that's part of your personality or your DNA. Obviously, first of all, you're not alone in that. Obviously, there's tons of people that feel the same way or we would, well, your book would have sold one copy, right? So still, you've already beaten that record given how many uh, how many people are ordering this after this. But I think the reason that this stuff matters is because you did pivot, yeah, it would have been weird if you were talking about what to do after college at age 45, right? And that's where we find most of our career advice from kind of way too removed. And you're able to write this book to teach people how to pivot early enough that it makes sense and they're not looking at things like sunk cost. I've already been at Google for three years. I'm gonna just start over? That's too scary not doing it. And then it becomes 13 years and you're stagnating, Google or not.
1: Right, I joke that for anyone listening to a podcast like yours, we don't have FOMO, we have FONT fear of not trying, which is that I would have rather left Google and know that I at least gave it a shot to make it on my own than have never even tried out of fear. And I will also say that, you know, I kept calling what I was going through. It was happening every few years. Oh, I'm having a midlife crisis or oh, I'm having a quarter life crisis. And I hear that from people all the time. But what's weird is that why do we have this expectation that, oh, we get two of these, our allowance is two of these in a lifetime. And instead, what you said, I've been shocked by how many people come up to me and they're like, I need this. I'm also trying to figure out what's next. I also hit a career plateau. And the big secret to pivot is that when we get better at it, the pivot points are less shocking. So it becomes a mindset and a habit and a set of practices and entrepreneurship certainly teaches that, but everybody can learn this. And that way, if you're constantly in a mindset of learning, experimenting, the pivot points aren't so jarring.
0: To be clear, pivot is, I think it's a borrowed tech term for moving in a different direction. It's basically what it sounds like, but it's a fancy term for, for changing careers, correct? Just so people aren't confused.
1: Yes. And the difference, because yes, I definitely co-opted this from Silicon Valley, which is where I'm born and raised, and I love applying tech to life in general. But typically, when startups talk about pivoting, it's plan B. Their original strategy failed. So they have to pivot in order to save the business from collapse. The interesting thing that I found while researching this book is that for individuals, pivot is plan A, that actually we're all being asked to ask and answer this question, what's next, every few years. We don't have the luxury of the same job for 30 years anymore, at least with rare exception. So for us, pivoting is the new normal, that actually it's on us to be really proactive about it and not see it as, oh, I've failed at something. Pivoting is actually a product of our success.
0: That's an important point, right? Because otherwise you end up with the problems we mentioned earlier, which is, I don't want to have to change because everybody else or myself I think there's a fear factor here, right? Oh, if I change jobs, my parents are gonna go, see, I told you that that plan was not working, or my friends are gonna think I failed in this career, and that's why I'm changing over. Instead, we should see these pivots, these routine changes, these evolutions, as a good thing and as something that is completely par for the course when you're doing well, not something you do because you're dropping the ball at Google and they're gonna fire you so you quit, right?
1: Right. And in engineering, there's a term redundancy, which is having multiple systems in place, much like even how you record podcasts. You know, you have multiple recordings going. And for you, for example, right, you went to law school, you were doing securities law in New York. Didn't you start podcasting kind of on the side?
0: Yeah, it was a side gig. Although my pivot was, hey, you're probably not going to have a job soon because no one's going to have a job because 2008 happened, largely as a result of the work that we're doing here at this firm. And I thought, Oh, time for a pivot. <laughs> Plan B.
1: That's right. Well, that's the whole point is that you either pivot or get pivoted. So listen, let's just say, too, I know that this is really scary. I mean, I was in the thick of it where I did not know how I was going to pay the rent. I was eating power bars for dinner. I would walk by restaurants in New York and be sad. Like, when can I afford to be back in there laughing with friends again? I mean, so I get it because career changes do seem to threaten our most fundamental needs on Maslow's hierarchy, food, clothing, shelter. However, if we let that fear overrule us, then you get pivoted, like what you were describing with 2008. And as a result of what you were noticing in the market, and then kind of starting something on the side, you did move into this new direction and are now very successful at it. But it's not like you would have known when you first started podcasting, oh, I should go all in on this new thing because I'm psychic and I can see the future, (laughs) you know?
0: No, and in fact, people always say, what would you do if you had to do it over again? I don't have the energy to do it over again. That's probably a separate conversation, but I don't know if I would be able to do it over again. It was just, it was very hard. But I will say that I never would have been happy being an attorney. I mean, it's just, it's laughable to think I would have stayed in that career, and yet I know people from my own class that stayed in that career that are just freaking miserable or have changed within the legal field to something else. One of my friends actually, is a lawyer at Google as well, and he likes it, he enjoys it, but we were all at big law for a while, and you pivot within careers, it's kind of seen as normal, right? You work for a big law firm, then you go in house somewhere, nobody thinks that's weird, but if you go from law to, you know what, actually I'm gonna learn how to code, I have an app idea, then people are like, what, you're such an idiot. You know, you're not taking your skills with you, and that's, it's just not true, first of all, and I think that mindset shift between looking at pivots as, pulling the ripcord on the emergency parachute versus being pulled in a different direction that's more beneficial. I think there's a huge benefit to making that mindset shift and huge dangers to being lazy about it and looking at it through a negative light, not only for those around you in terms of being supportive, but you could very well need to pivot in your own career and just not see it because you don't wanna quote-unquote admit defeat.
1: Right, and so often, like you said, these changes happen and they're actually for the best. And I know that's Pollyanna. It's kind of annoying to say, but there's not one person I interviewed who got laid off or reorged or their company got acquired and then they were fired. That was in the end. They were like, that needed to happen. I was ready to move on. And then on the flip side, a lot of people I love, there's nothing I love more than hearing about someone's totally random, unique skill set and all their varied interests. And then that moment of congruence when they come together, you know, I'd be curious for you how law has helped in building Art of Charm. A lot of people will say when they do make their next move, wow, it feels like my whole career has been preparing me for this. And that actually, because of that variety, I use the smartphone analogy. It's like your career is a set of apps and it's up to you to download apps for skills, interests, education. So your unique combination of apps, it just has to work for you. We don't compare our phones with each other and like, who has better apps? You know?
0: Right. We don't do that. But I, I think there's maybe a sub-skill set here and making ourselves more agile when it comes to career change. Because if we're agile, once we see a plateau, we don't just think, well, this is the way it is. We go, all right, what's next? Because we're not afraid to take that. It's kind of like, you would be less afraid to jump out of an airplane if you know you had a parachute and some training and how to use it it's probably a lot scarier if you have to jump out of the airplane and you've never used it or you just don't even have one. The agility that you build through maybe the different apps or the different skill sets, that seems like something that you would have to work at and not just something that happens to you. It's probably better to be ready for the pivot than to, like you said, be pivoted.
1: Absolutely, I'm fascinated by this question of what makes people more agile careerists, whether you're self-employed or you work for someone else. And there are three things that I found results, reputation and platform. So results, you got to be good at something and actually make shit happen. (laughs) Let's just say like, it's one thing to go take a class. But what are you actually creating in the world? What impact can you create in your business and other people's lives in a company? And then reputation is do people know about it? And then the final one platform The people who are the most agile actually have opportunities and clients coming to them. So not only do they get results and they're good at it and people know about it, but at that point, they're so agile that they're getting poached. My friend Julie was running leadership programs at a hedge fund in New York. And out of the blue, she got a call from a recruiter for Chanel to run global people development programs. And that they called her, she would have never dared to dream to ask for that job. I mean, that's a fortunate
0: pivot, right? That's something that she prepared for, even though she didn't maybe know she was doing that. And it's something that they noticed when they were looking for talent. They probably didn't call her because her name was the first one in the phone book. They called her because they knew she had a set of unique skills that they were looking for.
1: Well, and she had previously worked at Google. She wrote a book called The Work Revolution. And the interesting thing was the book didn't, take off in in any major way. So, you know, for the first few years, it was kind of like, huh, what is this book meant to do in the world? But if all the book did was get her in front of that recruiter at Chanel and it got her the job because they could read her entire philosophy on workplace culture during the interview process. So by her making herself discoverable, I use that analogy like Bluetooth devices, we need to be discoverable so that we can pair with the right types of clients or companies, that by her writing that book, even though she had no aspirations to be a full-time author, she loves working within organizations. She was discoverable and a company like Chanel poached her. And the best people, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs have a waitlist because people are actually knocking on their door. For you, Jordan, it's like you have publicists, people emailing you saying, hey, can my author be on your podcast? That's so different than you having to knock down doors.
0: I remember thinking a long time ago, man, you know, I'd love to be getting free books and be getting pitched, but nobody knows what podcasts are because blogs were trendy, so all my blogger friends are like, here, you can have this used copy of my book. I got 10,000 books last month, and now people try to mail me books, and I'm like, don't mail this book to me. Don't you dare mail this book to me. (laughs) Stuff like that, especially a paper copy that's just going straight to goodwill. And of course, now we're still knocking down doors, we're just knocking down different doors. And I would imagine in 10 years, I'm gonna be like, ah, if I hear from another celebrity, I'm gonna vomit, you know? But I, I do think that the discoverability principle is very important because it obviously is a huge advantage to have a platform of some kind. How can we do that if, say I'm 25, am I really gonna write a book on what I've learned in my career? I mean, it seems like that's, possible, but it's a pretty bold move and very, very time consuming as well. Even if we're super talented and we're very organized, writing a book would take years to do. Are there things we can do to be discoverable that don't involve hitting the New York Times list?
1: Definitely. Writing a book is not going to be everybody's strength, forte, or interest by no means. There's another person whose story I share in the book. His name is Dan Kelligan. He's a photographer. And he, for the first few years of his Instagram account, he just took a beautiful photo once a day or even once a week, but he always made sure that they were thoughtful and high quality and interesting. And he was working at the time for Groupon and his job was taking interior office building shots for Groupon. You know, it was like not his dream job. But then one day Instagram featured him for a week as one of their top users and his account skyrocketed to a hundred thousand because of the quality of the history of his photographs. And then after that, now companies like Audi and Warby Parker are reaching out saying, Hey, can we pay you to post a shot for us? And thousands of dollars and he stays for free wherever he travels cuz he gets the stay in hotels he does in exchange for posting on Instagram. So that's an example that his art was a beautiful photograph. And I totally get, you know, one of my friends Stacy said these days we're expected to live our lives at the same time that we brand the shit out of them. And I get that not everyone wants to be a brand, but what do you love? What are you interested in? What can you become an expert at? And then how can you authentically add value to the world around it. And again, it doesn't have to be a book. And it certainly doesn't have to be a best selling one. But what can you give to the world? What can you contribute? That's part of what leads to being discoverable rather than just saying, what can I get? What can I take? What can I create? What kind of business model do I want? You know, that's all me, me, me. But to ask at the same time, how can I make an impact? That's when the cycle really starts to take off.
2: Hey Art Charm listeners, I'm excited to share a new podcast I've been absolutely binging. Winning is an everyday mindset and Craig Robinson and John Calipari are here to help. On Ways to Win podcast, Craig and Coach Cal use their on-court wisdom to solve your off-court problems. Whether it's trouble at home or a workplace dilemma, the coaches will help you find a winning formula for success. You'll hear from prominent athletes, business leaders, and celebrities who reveal insights that made them into the leaders they are today. And don't miss President Obama sharing how he deals with pressure by projecting confidence, believing in your team, and taking criticism. Listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has
2: always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi.
0: So it can be about a platform pretty much anywhere. Would you say it's about a platform, though? Because it sounds like when we talk about social capital, it sounds like the same concept. It could be a dinner party that you have every month with top influencers in your industry, or it could be a blog that you keep where you curate articles and you write thoughts of your own based on your expertise in some sort of random area like oil drilling. There's certain industry bloggers, it's probably a closed circle, but if you're able to and willing to write about that stuff, you can become part of that and gain visibility that way. I like the social media angle. That, however, relies a lot on luck.
1: Here's another example. So. When my first book, Life After College, was coming out, authors are my heroes. One of my goals, I really wanted to get to know more authors. And I was moving from the Bay Area to New York. One of the things I did in parallel, so I was very overwhelmed by the book marketing process. I didn't know the first thing about it. And it really overwhelmed me. So for my personal use, I created a 15-tab book marketing spreadsheet. This is not social media. This was something I did to organize my crazy brain. And then I had the opportunity to go present at Seth Godin's office, the Domino Project. And they said, do you have one thing that you could talk about for 15 minutes? And I was really nervous. I said, I have this spreadsheet, but you guys are going to think I'm batshit crazy, you know? And they just said, no, show us. We want to see what you're doing. Presented that. Seth loved it. He linked to it on his blog. It's now been downloaded 8,000 times. I'll go to a book launch party and I've never met the author. And they'll say, oh, you're Jenny Blake. We just used your spreadsheet." So there's an example. It's not social media. It's something that I created to kind of ease my own overwhelm and then shared it. And because of that, I've now been able to connect with more authors and feel like I added value for them, whereas they would have never been interested in a book called Life After College.
0: This is not just creating a platform by accident, but this is exactly how you design useful tools. I get a lot of email from people that wanna learn how to make something special or do something interesting, or what should I do with my life, or how do I start a business. The best piece of advice, and what we did with the Art of Charm, was just create something that you would use, and it's simple but very difficult at the same time, because you start off going, I'm gonna create this thing that I would totally use, and then either other people need to use it, which is 99.9% of the time, but then the second you start making it for other people, it just goes freaking crazy. You start making your own software and you're like, cool, this is really neat and useful, and then it's like, oh, I, I should sell this, and then it turns into a freaking weird mission creep product where you end up with this crazy thing. So I think one of the reasons your spreadsheet worked so well was because you made the whole thing for yourself, and then probably what needed to happen when to make it more shareable was, some formatting, right? That was probably it. Or maybe you got rid of some shorthand that you used that only you know what it meant, but otherwise it was largely the same piece of work. Is that true?
1: Yes, I didn't put pressure on myself to monetize it, make it a business. And I didn't even do an email capture in order for people to use it because I didn't care. I wasn't in it for that. And actually, people probably make fun of me. <laughs> you know, I've been doing the online business thing for 10 years. And for a lot of my best resources, I refuse to put an email capture in front of it. I want people to download things, get value, you know, or in this case, read the book. And if they enjoy it, come on in, come sign up for the newsletter. I'd love to have you. I'm always curating interesting tools or articles, but I don't believe in hiding things behind an email wall. Now, again, I know that's like probably bad business, but uh, it's just kind of how I roll. I just prefer for people to test things out. And it's kind of like, I don't know, not asking someone to marry you up front. It's like, yeah, go poke around a little bit. And if you're interested, let's be friends.
0: Yeah, I dig that. I definitely dig that. And giving it away and making it free, I mean, that's obviously something near and dear to my heart. I want to dive right back into the pivoting thing because I love the idea of pivoting, but I want to talk about how to actually do this because this is, there's a method to the madness. This isn't about, and just forget entrepreneurs, what a lot of people are age under, let's say under 40, are thinking they have to do because some guy in a YouTube video said so, they feel like, I need to do a 180, I need to quit my job and go all in, and I was just at an event where a bunch of younger guys in their 20s were speaking, and they're like, I quit my job to go all in on whatever marketing thing or whatever, and I kept asking him, why did you go all in? And it always comes down to some kind of weird thing, like I want my friends to know I'm committed, or I don't wanna look like I'm failing by being a waiter and working on my side gig, And but pivoting is different, right? These are methodical. You think like a basketball player. One foot stays grounded, the other one scans for opportunity. And I think this is very important. This is not just bold action for the sake of it.
1: Oh, exactly. Yes. that's For the people who are just fearless risk takers and want to go all in, that's fine. Do you? But that's not who I'm talking to. I'm talking to people who are you know, willing to take smart risks, but generally pragmatic and responsible and want to kind of build methodically towards something. And I'll say that the biggest mistake I made when my bank account balance was dwindling to zero was I was focused way too much on what wasn't working and what I didn't have and what I didn't know. And it was not until I thought about this basketball player thing and started to double down on what was working and build from my strengths that things really started to regain traction. So part of the method, and the book lays out a four-stage pivot method, So inefficiency bothers me. Okay, this is like one of the things I try to solve in the world. There's an agile development quote. Each time you repeat a task, take one step toward automating it. So it occurred to me that, well, if we're all having to figure out what's next more often, every few years, we have got to get better at it. Because this is so inefficient. We all have friends who are like, I'm bored, but they don't know what to do about it. you know, (laughs) Or they know they need to change and they're not doing it yet. So the pivot method is about really methodically First, starting from a base of your strengths, what's already working, that's the plant foot, and your one-year vision. What do you want a year from now? What does success look like? Now, these are your known variables. So this brackets where you are now and where you want to end up. So then the second stage, scan, is about looking for opportunity. And that could be people you want to connect to, new skills you want to develop, and projects that are interesting to you. But it's really critical that the scanning elements be tied to your strengths. Because the mistake most people make, especially go-getters, is they think, oh, I'm at a pivot point. What's out there? And so they immediately start looking outside of themselves. And then the third stage pilot is like akin to the basketball player passing the ball around the court. Where do you have the best chance to make a shot? So this is about small experiments that you can run in 10 to 20% of your time. Again, whether self-employed or at a company. And you can repeat plant, scan, pilot over and over. I've done this when I got stuck on writing my book on projects in business. And then eventually the fourth stage launch is like going for it. That's the all in moment. But if you go straight to all in, that's where a lot of pivots fail. So by the time you've plant scanned and piloted enough, then the launch is less scary, and it's the remaining 10 to 20%. Yeah,
0: we see a lot of people doing the all-in before the pilot. of course, you're setting yourself up for potential failure here big time with no safety net. And a lot of people think, oh, well, having a safety net makes you soft or something. And it's, it's just really not true. And the data sort of bears this out, that we see that people who go all in, obviously much more likely to fail than people who go slowly and methodically, unless you're using your current career as an excuse to not do anything, which might be a sign that you don't have what it takes, or you're not willing to do the work to succeed, But I think for most of us, going all in without pilot, it's just kind of foolish. And most of it is ego driven so that you can like tell Gary Vaynerchuk that you went all in and you feel great about it.
1: And one of the keys is how related. So again, this is what makes it a pivot and not a 180. So when I was at Google, I was doing coaching and career development. And I left and people thought, oh, that's so shocking to leave Google. But then I was doing coaching and career development, the same exact activities, now self-employed. When I got the job at Google, I had been managing a Google AdWords account at a startup company. And that was only... 5% of my role there, but then I applied to Google on the AdWords product training team. So there are connecting factors. So when I see people whose pivots don't work, it's usually that they're not well enough linked up with what they're doing already. And that's not to say we're locked into a career track and we have to stay there. But as you mentioned, even finances, there's a whole chapter in the book on finances because your pivot runway will inform when and how you can pivot and how much opportunity for risk that you have. So... I think it's really important to recognize like those people who are kind of going all in blind, good luck, you know, (laughs) get ready for a big wake up call, especially if it's very different from what they've already been doing, or they don't have the results, reputation and platform. Because that's also really hard when you think you can four hour work weekend and just quit your job and build a muse business overnight. And that's all well and good. But as you know, too, it takes time to build these things.
0: I want to be really clear, though. I think it's important to do this. It doesn't mean fully reinventing yourself, and I think this needs to be laid bare because I think the reason a lot of people are afraid to go all in or even do the methodical thing, or they'll do the methodical thing and then kind of back down is because people are afraid that if they're going to have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. But pivoting doesn't mean taking a wild leap like we mentioned earlier. It means slow change, even in in your own skill set and in your own direction. I just kind of want to hammer this down a little bit because i think anytime we think directional change in career we think totally different lifestyle right like going from the ceo of facebook to stay at home mom and then back to a startup or something it doesn't have to be that drastic and i think that's what scares a lot of people is the idea that they're going to have to start from
1: scratch Yeah. And it's one thing to have a hypothesis about what's next and it's quite another to test it. So this is where the idea of pilots again becomes so critical because it gives you real world data about what you're going to like or not. So a good pilot will test what I call the three E's. Enjoyment. Do I like this thing? Expertise. Can I become an expert at it? And do I want to? And expansion is there room in the market for this? So for you with podcasting, when you were doing it on the side, and I started blogging, I started a website in 2005. Am I enjoying it? Yes. Can I become an expert at it? Sure, why not? You know, I'll keep teaching myself these skills. And expansion is a room to keep going. And when you can pilot, it takes the pressure off of having to monetize something like a blog or a podcast overnight. So that's where having these redundant or multiple streams of income is quite helpful. So that We're not flying blind. And on the other side of the coin, I talk in the book about unrealized gains. That's if you're quitting something too soon. We're also not advocating for reckless job hopping and diminishing returns. There are a point where people stay too long and they're no longer getting value from whatever the current thing is that they're doing. So it's important to kind of be assessing and decisions are data. At some point, you just got to do it. We don't know if you're going to succeed or fail. And also, how do you even define failure? So much of this is about learning and continuing to adjust. But that at a certain point, you do got to just decide and go for it and then use that new information to inform the next set of pilots. Perfect. Well, let's
0: talk about how to get a jump on that pivot process before we get pivoted and hit the inflection points kind of on our own terms rather than when the market or the boss throws them at us. You've got some pretty good practicals here, things like high net growth. Let's talk about
1: these. So high net growth, when I thought about who is this book for, it's not age specific. It's actually I don't narrow it down to age, life stage, or even bank account balance. The people that this is for, I call them high net growth. So we all know high net worth is you've earned a lot of money in your lifetime. People who are high net growth will take a pay cut, bootstrap a business, make a horizontal move. They want to optimize for learning and growing. And when those needs are being met, they turn toward making an impact. So, and I call them impactors for short. For impactors, if they are not learning and growing, they're out of there. And some people call this entitled, I call it smart. If you're not adding value to an organization or if you're self-employed to clients' lives, you're out of business. So I don't shame and blame people for wanting to add value to the world and have meaningful work. And I think it's important. And so that's what this high net growth, it's a mindset that says, you know, Tim Ferriss, he even says in 4-Hour Workweek, the opposite of happiness is boredom. And that's really a high net growth type of mindset
0: a lot of folks are thinking, well, I need to stay in this because the pay is good or the pay is guaranteed. But we know that if you're bored, I mean, the currency of the new rich, right, is this mobility to move two different careers that have more free time or more interesting work. And these are things that people didn't really look at or seem to even care about. Well, at least in my dad's day, there wasn't a whole lot of anybody caring at all about the fulfillment of the job, so to speak. It wasn't even something that came up in conversations with my parents, honestly.
1: That's so true. Same with my mom when I was telling her, we still to this day disagree about my choice to leave Google when I did. And when I was telling her, I'm not fulfilled. She's like, what is this? Work is work. She's been at Stanford for 20 years and she's just like, essentially like, you're crazy to even be optimizing for this. (laughs) You know, like she kind of saw me as very emotional about my work, very different mindset. And let's just add to that for some people, especially if you're a primary breadwinner and you have a family, sometimes you do need to stick with something for solely for financial reasons. Then there's another category of people who are fine to set it and forget it career-wise. They're fine to get one job and not care what it is and go with that for 20 or 30 years. But that's most likely not the people listening to this podcast. People who really, as overwhelming as change can be, it's also where we thrive. And we love the adventure of it. And I think deep down, we love the complexity of not knowing what's next and figuring it out and we would be so bored otherwise
0: can we test to whether the grass is greener on the other side cuz sometimes the grass is always greener because there is something better out there for you. But again, not going all in, testing a pilot, how does that look? How is, is there a formula for this? It's kind of hard to have one foot in at Google and another, like, I'm just writing this book on the side. I mean, maybe that's what you did, but it seems like a heck of a lot of work.
1: It is a lot of work. And what happened to me was I kept burning out. And so even two weeks before my first book launched, I was in Chipotle with a friend and he said, how are you? And I burst into tears. And I just was like so overwhelmed. And so for me, it got to the point where I realized I can't keep doing both. If we think of pilots like racehorses at the starting gate, eventually, even if they feel all even, oh, which direction should I go? Eventually, one of them starts to pull ahead. And that's kind of what was happening for me, that when I I took a three-month unpaid leave to do a book tour, and I was so busy every day of that book tour. I couldn't fathom how I ever had a full-time job in addition to doing my own side thing. So sometimes these projects take on an energy of their own. And then sometimes it's our body. We get physical signals that you can't keep doing everything or you can't keep staying still. I had a friend who started getting panic attacks when she would get off the subway on her way to work. That's a clear sign that she's got to pivot.
0: So people are getting physically ill from having jobs where they feel like they're stuck or bored or dead ended.
1: Yeah, or burnt out, or if you don't respond, your body will continue speaking louder and louder and louder until you listen. That's interesting.
0: That totally tracks with me. I just figured I was being a wimp when stuff like that happens. But I see that a lot in other people. I never feel like they're being a wimp. I'm a, I guess I'm just out here on myself.
1: Like, did you have any physical signals when you were back doing the law thing, given how much doesn't resonate with you? Yeah, you know what was interesting is, I had a room that didn't
0: have windows, and that's where I was having so much trouble waking up. Room with no windows in New York, surprise, right? I was having so much trouble waking up in the morning, and I blamed that. Then I had a great room that had tons of sunlight, and tons of light, and tons of activity in the house, because I lived at the time with everybody else from The Art of Charm, which was insane. and. I would wake up, but then I would just i would be so tired, I'd have to go back to sleep, and I would sleep in, and then some days I would leave early and take a nap, and my office mate was saying, hey man, look, you should probably get here earlier. Like, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, I'm not gonna rat you out, but people will notice if you keep showing up at 9.30 a.m. or 10, even though most people get there at 8.30 or 9, it wasn't that big of a difference, and I just thought, oh, but I'm just so beat from the job. Now, I can get up at like 6.30, and do a ton of work, and then I'm like, oh, it's 7 p.m. already? Oh, I haven't eaten today, I should probably do that. And then I'm like, all right, I'll eat, and then I'll go to the gym. And, and I just realized, wait a minute, I wasn't just tired or having trouble waking up, I was just freaking depressed. I was just bored out of my mind.
1: That is so fascinating. Yeah, just that lethargy feeling, that's been so interesting to hear about, even changing your environment didn't fix it. For me, I had a thyroid problem, coincidentally, for the exact five years I worked at Google. It's like, could be total coincidence, but i got to the point when I got to New York, after I left, I had a doctor say, you've got to take this radioactive iodine pill and kill your thyroid. It's just going to kill itself. And I said, no, I'm not going to kill an organ just because you're telling me to. And because my lifestyle had changed and the nature of my work and I started taking better care of myself, I actually wasn't eating three massive meals a day because it was all the free food. I lost 15 pounds and my thyroid thing never returned, knock on wood.
0: Did you have hypo or hyperthyroid?
1: Hyper, it was overactive.
0: See, that makes sense because I'm thinking maybe you just had crazy adrenal fatigue that contributed to that as well, if those things are linked
1: The adrenal fatigue would have probably sent me into the other way where your thyroid slows down. But either way, I've become such a believer in the physical kind of manifestation of this. I'm not even making this up. This is truly what happens that when we experience stress, our body stops long-term health prevention and goes into fight-or-flight mode to stop the imminent stress attack. So studies now show that we experience those moments of stress 100, 150 times a day. So of course our body's going to stop long-term health prevention disease prevention and go to the short-term needs. So I also just think on a practical level, we're more susceptible to things like hyperthyroid. I got vertigo after that was recently after about of two weeks of really pushing myself too hard. So my body now has me on a short leash. It's like the minute I start doing things that aren't good for it, slam, it speaks up.
0: Now back to the show. You're the only person under a hundred I've ever even heard of having
1: vertigo. What are you, Liza Minnelli? Jordan, it was crazy. I stood up and, like, when I woke up, the room was spinning counterclockwise, and I had to check. I'm like, am I hungover? No, I haven't had alcohol in three weeks. Am I pregnant? Nope, hadn't. That would be immaculate conception, <laughs> you know. And I walked down the street. I thought maybe I need a bagel. Like when you are hungover, I go down the street. As I'm going to pay for the bagel, I had to run out of the shop, find a trash can, and I threw up, just from being upright. It was so crazy. To take a shower the next day, I had to roll myself into the tub. That's insane. It's like
0: Arrested Development, where Liza Minnelli can't stand up. Ah,
1: It was nuts, and I didn't take any medicine. I'm not, whatever, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just saying, for me personally, I knew I had been stressed, And not sleeping well and not eating well. And so I did green juice for three days and it went away and it hasn't been back since. But that was, again, a clear (laughs) signal that I've got to do things differently. And especially for entrepreneurs, our body is our business. If we are run down and not sleeping or eating well or exercising, for me, I'm my pretty much my sole employee. It means my business is now operating at 50% and I care about it too much for that.
0: There's a lot of people in the middle of America right now where I'm from that are like, what a bunch of babies. Oh, I got dizzy because I'm working so hard. You know, they're pulling 12-hour shifts at Ford or any company in the Midwest, and they're working their butt off, and they're like, oh, you got physical symptoms. But I think the truth is— we probably all have these and work through them. I mean, I remember my dad making himself sick or like not eating for two days and being like, I'm really dizzy to my mom and stuff like that and just working really, really hard because we pride ourselves on that. And I think that it's easy to confuse working hard, which I think is a good thing. I love my Midwestern work ethic. It's easy to confuse working really hard with actually just burning yourself out and careening towards a brick wall that you can't see.
1: Yes. And I also do think there's a spiritual element of this, which is that there's a difference. There could be a person who's working eight hours in a factory and feels fine. But if you, Jordan, were trying to put in eight hours a day still at the law firm, your body would continue trying to talk to you and say, this is not for you. This is not what you're meant to be doing. You have got to go pursue your potential. And I know even the word potential is a shitty word.
0: You are really careful right there. I, I appreciate <laughs> I
1: know. But I do think that for some people, I don't know, it's just what we're meant to be doing and creating the world takes a certain type of energy, mental, emotional, spiritual kind of fitness and wellness. And yeah, 12 hours in the factory, no doubt. But we're also just doing a different kind of work
0: and output. How do we reduce some of the decision fatigue that comes on? Because it's really easy to find that you're now making a thousand decisions. Should I quit my job, should I stay? Should I do this, do I need to cut expenses, do I need to test this, how many people do I reach out to, what should my platform be, do I need to hire somebody? It seems like even thinking about that would be super overwhelming and could result in inaction or worse.
1: Yeah, this is huge. So decision fatigue, also known as ego depletion, is this idea that much like willpower, our ability to make decisions dwindles throughout the day, especially without proper recharging. So already when somebody is at a pivot point and they're asking massive questions of their life and their business, saying, what's next? What should I do? How will I support myself? already our ability to make other decisions has dwindled, that it is a limited capacity. So the flip side of that is, if you're making a ton of tiny decisions all day, every day, you don't have the resources to ask and answer the bigger questions without getting totally stressed out. So one of the things I recommend in the book and in life is systematize what you can. There's a reason Steve Jobs wore a black turtleneck every day. President Obama has the same set of suits that he wears. I was making the exact same chili soup for lunch for the first three years of running my own business. But that as much as you can systematize in terms of morning routines, wind up rituals, wind down rituals at the end of the day, you start to free up your mind for the biggest, most important questions. Similarly, if you're panicked, about how to pay the bills, that's going to significantly constrict your ability to think more creatively about the future. And that was a fascinating book called Scarcity, where the authors talk about how when we're experiencing scarcity of time, money, or resources, our thinking actually changes, our brain changes. So in the examples we talked about earlier, where people go all in with no safety net it's really not that smart even in practical terms because the second they start to get panicked about money, I use the analogy of an income anxiety seesaw. If your income drops too low, your anxiety is gonna skyrocket. So it's really important to, figure out how you can build enough of a financial buffer and enough routines and systemization to free up your mind for its best thinking. And it's annoying too, it's a lot like saying eat your spinach, but this is where mindfulness and meditation practices have been hugely helpful for me.
0: Yeah, I think the managing the stress with this and having a pathway to making decisions and not trying to do them all at once is obviously super helpful for navigating any kind of major change like this. With the finances especially, how do we know when we're ready to maybe go full-time? Or how do we know if we have enough money to take some time off and do the book tour? That type of stuff. I mean, how do you calculate that? Because I think a lot of folks are worried about just cutting off the supply, even if they've been super frugal or even really careful in planning this, there might be folks who are just worried about kind of cutting that umbilical cord because they're not sure about the way that they've planned or their calculations. Do they have runway? How much are they spending? Are they gonna be able to make it?
1: Yes. A couple key terms. One monthly nut, how much do you need to live? And I always, when I'm working with coaching clients, ask for three numbers. What's your minimum needed just to get by on must have expenses. What's your nice to have monthly nut of, you know, to maintain your current lifestyle and jump out of bed with glee. And I always like to have a range because a lot of times people will focus either on some totally unrealistic number. Yeah, I want 20K in passive income every month. Well, yeah, that'd be nice, but are you there yet? Or they'll they'll be so fear-based that they're like, what do I need just to scrape by? So now if you have a range, that will inform your pivot runway. So given your monthly net, I recommend at least six months of runway. That was consistent with a lot of the pivoters I interviewed for the book. And that's what I had when I left Google. So how many months, given where you live and your current lifestyle, will your monthly net and your savings, how many months will that buy you? Then I... Also share a make or break marker. You're in order of priority. What will you do and in what order if things are not going as planned? So for me, I had these assets and I actually made a list. I actually made a business plan for my inner CFO who was so worried about me quitting Google that mirrored a lot of the fears other people were expressing to me. But I made a little business plan and I said, if in the first six months, I am not earning any income, doing my own thing or earning enough, here's what I'll do. Number one. I'll sell my car. Number two, I will sell my stocks. Number three, I will sell my house. Number four, I will cash out my 401k. Number five, do not get to this point. Go get another job. And I actually had go get another job before cashing in my 401k. And the point is everyone's different about what assets you currently have and what you're willing to bet on your new direction. But at least up front, you can kind of set, well, what will I do? Some of the personal development stuff is like, don't ever think a negative thought. But I think that it's very helpful to plan through worst case scenarios. And if things aren't working, what will you do? And by when? And once you have those backup plans in place, you can be more calm in the moment too, if things aren't going as planned. But what I find is that most people are very resourceful, that if even a couple months in, things aren't going as planned, you can plant scan pilot again. So you can say, well, what is working? How am I currently getting clients? What is working about my business model or my services? And then do more of it. And so by doing that, hopefully you never have to get to that make or break point.
0: Yeah, I think there, again, the emergency parachute, just knowing that that's there makes it more likely that we can take the risk we need to to make the pivot in the first place.
1: And my editor said to me, I think she wanted me to take out some of the worst case scenario planning. And which is fair enough, she had a question, well, what if someone doesn't have any assets? What about them and how do they pivot? Well, the truth is, it's gonna be harder or it's gonna be riskier. I can't sit here and pretend that, oh, if you have no assets at all to your name, don't worry, you'll be fine. I mean, no, you're gonna have different constraints on your pivot. And so it may take longer to build up those reserves until you feel comfortable or, you're gonna quit without any reserves at all and you'll just know that you're taking on significantly more risk.
0: One of the most common questions that we get is, how do I know I'm ready to actually let go of one branch and hold on to the other one? Like, how do I know that I can release my old job or my old income stream? There's gotta be a way to know that in advance so that you don't make the decision impulsively, like, ah, I'm so sick of my job today, I quit, which is what a lot of people do, or they just hold on to that branch forever and they end up burning themselves out because they have one job that they don't like but they feel they need and a side business that they love, but for some reason, since they're enjoying it, can't be a real job and they never let go and they burn themselves out.
1: This is one of the biggest questions I get to. How do I know when I'm ready? How do I know when I'm ready? So one thing that I recommend, do a 30-day decision tracker. And there's a template for this on my website. But essentially, become more impartial. So going back to decision fatigue, if every day we're saying, should I quit? Should I quit? Should I quit? It's very inefficient for our brain. So one thing I would say is just observe for 30 days? How do you feel every day? And I like to rate a baseline. How do I feel overall in life? And how do I feel about this area that I'm making a decision on? Actually, Secret actually created this for a dating (laughs) someone I was dating. I was like, I don't know if this relationship is good for me or not. And I wanted to track more impartially than kind of emotionally trying to assess every day. And the funny thing was that I tracked for 29 days and on day 29, he broke up with me. But my data was already leading in that direction. Now, it's not like I go so crazy on every area of my life. But in that moment, I was so torn that I needed something that was going to help me out. The other thing that I recommend is for people to really think about and rank their launch criteria. The make or break kind of decision criteria are gonna be different for everybody. In studying this, I broke it down into five categories. So those are financial benchmarks, such as money saved or money earned, or waiting for a certain bonus to set in. Then there's date based timing. Some people want to wait until Oh, I've launched this thing at work, or I want to quit after the holidays, or I want to make a decision by x date, then there's progress milestones, completing something at work or in the business. Then for a lot of people, instinct or intuition. Ultimately, when I asked a lot of people said I just knew. They had a gut feeling. So it may be the case that you do everything you can to prepare. And then one day something happens and you will have a clearer gut instinct. And then the last category is in others' hands. That's if you're waiting for approval, you're waiting for a loan or to get into grad school or to get into an accelerator incubator program or get venture funding. I do question, you know, I do think people should kind of double check. Do you need to wait for any of those approvals or can you get going now? But the biggest thing is if you're indecisive, put off the decision, give yourself, say, I'm not even going to think about this decision for the next three weeks and be more objective. And the other thing I'll say, a lot of people conflate difficult decisions with difficult conversations. So they know in their gut, it's time to leave or end the relationship or leave the job, but they're so worried about how and when to deliver the news and what the other person's reaction will be that their mind tricks them into thinking they're unsure when actually they are. They're just fearful of the consequences.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because it is easy for our minds to trick us into thinking something's important when it really isn't. What are some things we should not be basing this decision on, right? If we set all these things up, right, these date-based, acceptance-based, what are some things that you see people making decisions that are not good criteria?
1: Anything fear-based. So I'm going to decide because I'm afraid or I'm going to stay because I'm afraid of X, Y, Z. So anytime the reason for your action or decision is because I'm afraid that, it's just not productive. I know when I was leaving Google, I kept having the thought, but well, what if I end up in a van down by the river? You know, what if I don't earn any money? And that was okay. That was a very natural fear to have. But I also did a thought replacement exercise, that I was allowed to have that fear. But every time that popped into my mind, I also said to myself, and what if I earn twice as much in half the time? So I made a point to hold the candle for that compelling, constructive vision as well, and that was really helpful.
0: Yeah, I I like this, and I'm glad you mentioned fear-based because I think there's a lot of folks that are are maybe thinking like, well, if this doesn't work or if this other thing at work happens again, the other thing I, I think I would maybe throw in there with a caveat is something that's really emotionally charged like this is the second time my boss has taken credit for me on this project and you know i'm so embarrassed in front of everybody at this meeting i quit right like that's a good reason to quit but it might not be a good reason to quit right at that time
1: right exactly
0: i see a lot of folks who post on facebook things like I quit my job today and you're like, yeah. And they're like, I'm so excited to start my side hustle business dot net. And everyone's like, yeah, go for it. And then someone's like, what happened? And then you hear the story. And sometimes it's something like, I just walked in and my coworker had eaten my lunch for the last time. I'm so upset. And it's like, well, okay, this isn't based on your pivot. This is based on your emotional response to your current work which is not really a good reason because it has no bearing on your ability to survive and thrive after you leave.
1: I also think it's really important for us to say here that this is not about eliminating your fear or smashing your fear or crushing it or pretending like it doesn't exist because that has really bothered me in a lot of the self-help fear is this idea that we can just crush our fear or fear is somehow the enemy or even insecurity you know there's this trope like you have to love yourself completely before someone else can love you well like really how many people find relationships anyway who loves themselves all the time like it just seems ridiculous to me so Part of what I want to give people permission for with pivot is you're not crazy. And if you are scared of making a change, you're human. And as you should be, that actually means that whatever change you're going for is big enough for you. It's exciting. It's challenging. It's compelling. If it were totally easy and you had no fear or insecurity around it at all, you would either A, already be doing it or B, be bored out of your mind. So for me, you know, I'm a big advocate actually for fear and insecurity and uncertainty and that these are signals that we're on the right track. And especially for high net growth individuals, we are a little more insecure than your average bear because we know what we don't know. There's a study, it's called the Denning-Kruger effect that actually the lower someone's intelligence or IQ, the higher they will self-rate themselves, kind of like how many people think they're good versus a bad driver, but that the higher your IQ, the lower you will self assess and rate yourself. So yeah, those of us who are trying to hustle and learn and grow and surround ourselves by people who are smarter than us, there's inherent fear and insecurity built in. So instead of making them the enemy, it's just accepting that and then keep moving anyway.
0: Jenny, this has been amazing. Thanks so much. Love the detailed output, right? So we have calls to action, things we can do, detailed steps. You've done it yourself. Really great episode. Is there anything that I have not asked you that you want to make sure you deliver?
1: Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. The the last thing I would say is just You know, I kind of say at the end of the book, learn to love the knots, that the complexity of having to change career more often, it's kind of, it's the good news and the bad news. The bad news is yes, we're all gonna have to learn this new skill set. but the good news is that it's so ripe with opportunity and it's really exciting for anyone who's willing to take the bull by the horns and go for it. Thanks so much, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan, and big thanks to everybody for listening.
0: Great stuff, I love the action steps. The real deal is that she's done this before, so she's actually outlined what she's done multiple times to make those pivots, to make sure she's not going all in when it's not time to go all in. Make sure she's preparing for pivots in advance. Make sure this isn't something that's keeping her stagnant or that she's afraid to do. And I think a lot of you might find that you're in a phase where you're about to pivot or maybe you should have pivoted a while ago and now you'll be able to get the skills to do that effectively. So if you enjoyed this one, by the way, don't forget to thank Jenny on Twitter, we'll have that in the show notes. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players. You can see the show notes right on your phone. We'll link to the book there as well, of course. And I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. Bootcamp and live program details are at theartofcharm.com. Remember, we sell out a few months in advance, so get in touch even if you're just thinking about it or you want some general info. And, of course, we have our challenge and our basic toolbox at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or Text charmed to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444 here in the US. The challenge, it's about improving your networking skills, your connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you and we'll email you that fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, and some videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every week. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and most importantly, a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed in the US to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life
3: hacks, and more. At the Art